This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Today's topic is incompetent men and why so many become our bosses. So we've explored some of the factors behind the great resignation this season. No sense of purpose, low wages, lack of childcare, inflexible schedules. And all of those play a part in the record number of people who have quit their jobs in the last six months. But one of the driving motivations for employees leaving their jobs has always been their bosses. The old adage is now perhaps more true than ever. You don't quit a job, you quit a manager. So... What is it about bosses that drives employees to quit? Take a glimpse into our collective angst by Googling my boss is and autocomplete will give you the following. My boss is toxic, incompetent, gaslighting me, a micromanager, passive aggressive, harassing me, bullying me, causing me anxiety. How did we get here? Are so many bosses really that bad? How do people end up in leadership positions if they're such bad managers? Did the pandemic make things worse? Joining me to discuss how people who end up in leadership positions often possess the traits least suited to manage and lead people is Dr. Tomas Chamaro Premizic. Tomas is the Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group, Professor of Business Psychology at the University College of London and Columbia University, a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, and the author of several books, including Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It. Tomas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So speaking of that very famous book you wrote. You also wrote a very popular article for Fast Company back in 2019 with the headline, men are almost 40% more likely to be narcissists. Science explains why they often become leaders. First, can you explain what the definition of a narcissist is? I think it's a, it's a clinical term that often gets used really casually a lot. And then second, can you explain why men are more likely to be narcissists? Sure. So narcissism is a personality disorder that is characterized by an unrealistically positive sense of self-importance, whereby people who are narcissistic or narcissists think of themselves too highly, more highly than they should vis-a-vis their actual talents, achievements, or worth. And that also typically um, consists of having deficits around empathy, where it's very difficult for narcissists to connect emotionally with others and either understand or care about what they are feeling. And the final kind of bucket that is typically found in narcissists or narcissistic individuals is a sense of entitlement, or by you think that, you know, you are special and therefore you deserve to be treated like a special person. And that creates a lot of, um, you know, um, uh, detrimental relations with others. In particular, when narcissists are threatened, they retaliate and behave very aggressively. And you're right, narcissism is a clinical term. And as a personality disorder, it's diagnosed within most mainstream kind of psychiatric uh, manuals for diagnosing psychological problems and disorders. But it also has a non-clinical side, which is the more common side that we found, you know, in business, politics, or in every environment um, in the real world. And 
non-clinical narcissists are kind of highly functional narcissists. So, you know, they might have these attributes that I described, but not to the degree that it impairs them to be successful in their career and sometimes even successful in their personal relationships. Although it's quite common for narcissistic people to have difficulties building long-term romantic or personal relationships. So, and, and as that article pointed out, and as your, your book points out, this is much more common in men than in women. Can you explain why that is? I mean, I think hearing these descriptions, probably a lot of us can, can think of an example or two of, of people either in pop culture or in our own work lives who fit this bill. But wh- why is this found more often in men? Is it culturally put there? Is it naturally put there? Like, wh- why are, are men more likely to be narcissists? You know, Kate, we don't really know why. There's certainly lots of different conflating factors, including culture, um, but uh, none of these factors or kind of explanations is sufficiently strong that we can say, oh, it's nature or nurture or it's specific things, you know, upbringing. Oh, it's because your parents told you that you're wonderful and that happens more often with boys than with girls that, you know, boys end up being more entitled narcissistic. So there's a bunch of factors at play, which are the same factors that we found when we want to explain other personality characteristics, be it normal traits like extroversion, curiosity, um, you know, uh, open-mindedness, or clinical traits like psychopathy and Machiavellianism. So we know that Roughly 40% of this variability can be traced to genetic makeup or, you know, hereditary factors, and about 60% is early environmental experiences. I think culture plays a role, but it's almost universal in the sense that in most, if not all, societies, um, parents uh, see their boys, I'm generalizing here, right, but there is an effect whereby parents see their children as more talented, more important, and more valuable when they're boys rather than girls. This is obviously changing a little bit in the last past decades. You know, societies are trending towards more egalitarian kind of parenting uh, approaches. But we have done lots of studies even recently where we asked parents to estimate their uh, the IQ of their kids and the talents uh, of their children. And typically, um, they give their sons scores that are about 20 or 30% higher than their daughters. And I think with that also comes the fact that most societies actually don't reward women for behaving in self-promotional and self-important way as they do men. You know, if, you, if you're a man and you walk into a meeting and you're mansplaining or very full of yourself and, you know, you're self-promoting very blatantly, it's quite likely that people, or at least some people, see you as charismatic Whereas if you do this as a woman, it's much more likely that people are put off because you don't fit the traditional archetype of being feminine. And I'm not saying that as a woman, you shouldn't try to you know, self-promote or seduce others, but I'm saying that that tax or that punishment that exists might make women less narcissistic. And, you know, I think that's you make a really good point there that it's it's not only that we're rewarding this behavior in in boys and and subsequently later men it's that we're punishing this behavior in girls and subsequently later women it's you know we're kind of sending these messages that like 
don't talk about your achievements. Don't, you know, don't be brash. Don't be assertive. Don't be any of those things if you're a woman. And if you're a man and, you know, as you get to in your book, you're rewarded for it. So I, I'd like to touch on that a little bit of why, you know, when you explain the characteristics of of narcissists in particular, they're kind of the opposite of the characteristics that make a good manager or make a good leader. But you have found that people with these types of personalities actually become leaders more than people with, you know, maybe empathetic personalities or cooperative personalities, the types of traits that make a good leader that are actually encouraged and nurtured in women and girls a lot more than men. So why do narcissists become leaders more than other personality types if this personality is kind of the worst suited to be a leader? Well, the simple answer would be that we don't really select or elect leaders on the basis of their talent, on the basis of their potential, you know, uh, which explains the difference, the near universal difference between the leaders we need and the leaders we actually get in most places. And if you want to go into some of the more specific attributes or dynamics that are at play, I think there are two that I would highlight. One is that in most organizations or let's say systems, people are rewarded if they are very focused on managing up and playing the game of politics. And if you have a kind of cutthroat, aggressive, kick-ass, you know, Darwinian in the bad or wrong sense of the word approach, um, and you're much more focused on getting ahead than getting along with others, Sadly, you often end up being in positions of power, status, and responsibility. And unfortunately, that's largely because we assume that there is a connection between putting yourself up for something and being good at something, which is, you know, the fundamental flow with things like lean in. You know, there has never been a strong correlation in men or women between nominating yourself or putting yourself forward for something and actually being good at that something. In fact, there's a very old quote that goes back all the way to Plato that says something along the line of only those who don't seek power should be allowed to have it, which is, you know, very much the antithesis of lean in. And then the second factor is more visible when we think about leaders that are elected, so not selected in organizations by other leaders or powerful people, but elected by voters, including in free and open democracies, which is that we overrate our intuition and we focus so much on style and so little on substance that, uh, you know, a lot of the times when we see people who are charming and they're fearless and they come across as charismatic, well, that also accidentally selects for a lot of narcissistic individuals. Not that if you are charming, charismatic and, you know, comfortable in social scenarios, you are necessarily narcissistic. But a lot of narcissistic individuals and psychopathic individuals, they're very charming in short-term interactions. They are fearless, um, you know, they are performers, and they're very, they're very shrewd when it comes to manipulating others and saying, you know, pressing the right buttons. So, you know, and as the world may, becomes more complex, we have more and more technology and data to actually identify whether someone is potentially a good leader or has talent for leadership. But our intuition is very, very hard to override. And we love to play it by ear. So you and I can be watching a presidential debate or candidates debating for a presidential election. And there might be 45 different live fact-checking devices there, but we don't care. We care about whether the person feels you know, like, like a trustworthy person and whether we would like to have a beer with them. 
And so, you know, that's a very, very flawed strategy for electing someone who actually has to run your country. Yeah, 100%. And it sounds like the way that you're telling it makes a lot of sense, you know, intuitively that the best suited person for the job is often not the person that is the biggest on self-promotion or maybe not the, you know, and and being charismatic is not that important of a, a leadership trait. Is it across the board that if you you have these characteristics of being charming and charismatic and and self-promotional and confident that you are by default lacking in in skill and ability or are there some sort of overlaps? Yeah, so they're definitely uncorrelated, which means, you know, they're totally unrelated or let's say almost unrelated, but you can assume that there will be some charismatic people who are uh, very competent and really, you know, nice persons as well. And there might be some charismatic people who are not just manipulative, but ruthlessly Machiavellian and psychopathic. So charisma isn't and an charms or these kind of manipulative social skills. Um, they're not good or bad per se. They're amplifiers. So look, if you're a competent, knowledgeable uh, leader with a good heart and good intentions, I would love for you to be as charismatic as possible so you can influence everyone and inspire them and drive positive change. But if you're inept or a crook or a bad, evil person, my biggest hope is that you have zero charisma so that you can't influence others. I mean, imagine if Hitler, Stalin and Mao had been uncharismatic. Um, you know, they would have probably done a lot less damage in the world. And that's true for any dictator and any kind of a leader who starts their career as a kind of a seductive, charismatic leader, but ends up being a toxic, parasitic dictator. And it's not like they change. Power may have corrupted them a little bit. But what happened is that what we thought were signs of emotional intelligence or people skills were actually the bright side of narcissism or psychopathy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, as I mentioned, and we've touched on this a little bit, you you wrote in a whole book expanding on this topic and why why the people who end up in leadership positions are often the least suited to be in those positions. And we've touched, you know, a lot on being charismatic and being confident. What are the other types of leadership styles that we favor and and how are they rewarded and why are the, the why are what we view as characteristics of a leader so flawed and so inaccurate and in what a leader actually needs to be? I so I think partly, you know, I can I mean it would be nice if it weren't this way. And of course the world would be better off if people were led and kind of managed by people who have talent who are competent and who have good intentions, but that doesn't happen as often as it should. But at the same time, I think you can understand why that is the case, which is that leadership has become very, very complex, you know, to the point that it's very, very hard to even understand whether a leader is doing a good job or not in most domains of competence. So, you know, if you look at you know, there are a lot of people who follow uh, professional sports, team sports, and they get really into baseball or basketball or football or soccer. And those are very data-rich environments. The rules of the game are very clearly defined. You know, you, you can even understand how resources are allocated, etc. And people will still argue in a bar or over Zoom now or either um, over whether a manager was better than the predecessor or not, right? Because they said, well, but, you know, all the positive things, the foundations of the team were done by the predecessor. 
this guy just came and won the titles and so forth. So, you know, there's always an element of uh, subjectivity and unknowns. And that's in the world where it should be most objective and rigorous to evaluate leadership performance. If you go to the extreme of politics, you know, I don't think more than 5% of the people change their mind about whether a person they elected was the right candidate or not. And no matter what happens, right? I mean, we're seeing it right now, um, or we saw it in the last year and a half. It didn't matter what happened in the world with the COVID numbers or the pandemic. We're so tribal and we're so you know partisan that we don't want for any facts to change our mind. And you can have a discussion with anyone in the United States or anywhere. You can ask people who were the best leaders uh, heads of state in their country over the past 50 years, you're not going to have a very data-driven response. You know, People are going to talk about who they like, um, who made a good impression of, uh, on them, and at best, who seem to have a narrative that agrees with their values, You know, which are also subjective. But if you ask them, what about key performance indicators? What about you know, results? What do they do for the economy, for health, for inequality, for innovation, for the environment, etc.? Mostly people don't know. And you know, you can't blame them. It's very complex. You know, even and even those who have a PhD in political science, uh, they're still driven by their preferences. So it's almost like we evolved these ape-like brains over 300,000 years or so. And for 99% of our evolutionary history, it was very easy to recognize a good leader. A, we hung out with the same people all our lives. So, you know, you would live and die having met 20 people only. That was it. Life was pretty boring. And then leadership was about being tough, strong, having courage and making the right decisions, as in let's go right and not left so that we're not eaten or that we found food. And so you didn't need to assess whether somebody was inclusive, whether they had an innovative strategy for digital transformation or whether they could fix um, inequality and climate change. You know, how can you decide if someone can be the right person for these difficult tasks if you have 30 seconds? Yeah, you make such a good point, you know, especially when you talk about the data not mattering. You know, I think, you know, as you kind of alluded to, especially in the in the U.S. in our last election, um, the cult of personality around Donald Trump. And he said it pretty much. He laid it right out there and he said, I could shoot someone on Madison Avenue and it wouldn't matter. Like he knew that his behavior his results, what he did, you know, if he kept his promises or didn't keep his promises, it didn't matter because if you liked him, you liked him. And it, it seems like that kind of goes through any type of leader who, who's in a position of power. Exactly. And I think that's the controversial part, because I agree with you about Trump. I think it's pretty obvious. The controversial part is that he actually said it. So he was honest and, and he stated it. Mm -hmm. But the thing that almost annoys me a little bit more is that if you're on the other side of the political spectrum, as I am, and as most of my friends are, you can easily deceive yourself that actually on the other side is very objective and people are very data-driven and there is no personality cult. Well, there might be a more subtle, subliminal, uh, you know, cult of a leader, but it's still there. It's still based on tribal attitudes, on thinking that your team is now in charge and is going to win. And ultimately, you know, we need more mature followers to have better leaders. That's true, not just in organizations, but also in societies. I'd give you a very, very quick story 
which is timely because Angela Merkel is about to step down, you know, and I think she's the exception to so many of the rules and, and, and the characters that I describe in my book. And I remember when I was doing my PhD in the UK and my roommate was a German computer scientist in the middle of having dinner with me, remembered that he had to go and vote and he was feeling bad because he hadn't done it. And he went to his room, connected, you know, to the internet, answered 50 questions about his views on, you know, immigration, the economy, health, education, etc. It was a very simple self-report questionnaire. And at the end, the tool said, okay, you should vote for this person or this party, which ended up being Angela Merkel, who, of course, for most people in a, in a presidential or head of state debate, won't stand out for being either very entertaining or very funny or very charismatic. But I thought, wow, this is such a rational approach to selecting a leader, of course, based largely on the premise that then the person will do what they're supposed to do, which doesn't happen very often. But that seems unthinkable, not just in America, but in most modern democracies. Did he vote for her? He did. Okay, I was going to say, I, I thought that story was going to take a no, turn no, no, where no, he, no. Took, he took the assessment, it said vote for her, and he's still like, nah, no, she's not who I picture as a leader. <laughs> That's good. No, yeah. no, no, he, he did. And, you know, the, it's interesting also because uh, she is, uh, you know, a leader who over the years also pivoted quite a bit. She started very much on the center right by German standards and then moved to the center left, certainly left in a, in a, according to the social uh, policies, etc., and so in a way, the people who liked her in the beginning ended up not liking her so much at the end and vice versa. But I always remind people because she has her critics, tell me someone who in the last 10 or 15 years has done a better job and has demonstrated more integrity and more competence for being in charge of a country. And so, you know, since you bring that up and since we we touched on it a little bit before, I'd just like to go back to the idea that when we talk about this, and especially when we kind of generalize, you know, these traits don't apply only to men. They don't apply to all men. But this is a type of behavior that's received differently, um, you know, when we're talking about narcissism and being overconfident, that is received differently when it comes to women and also when it comes to um, men and women of color versus white men. Can you talk a little bit about how these characteristics are perceived differently for white men versus other people? Yeah, and so I think it's hard to kind of generalize when you really want to go across all the potential groups, right, or, or typical demographic categories that we use for diversity. But I think the two points that I would highlight, what it would be A, the one you mentioned, that there are individual differences in narcissism in the sense of the proclivity or tendency to be self-important, entitled, and non-empathetic. And so it's at the individual level that we have the richest kind of story and models to understand whether someone is more or less narcissistic. And that's the level that we should operate, right? So even when we're discussing gender differences or differences in nationality or race or culture, right? Because you could say, well, America, and especially if you go to LA or the West Coast, is probably more narcissistic than, you know, Japan or uh, South Korea in, in a cultural way, if you even think about the behaviors that are rewarded or not. And then once you can really understand or identify these differences at the individual level, you can look at whether there are group differences as well, right? So for example, height has a strong gender difference because on average men are taller than women but you measure height individually and it would be stupid to assume that 
if you're tall, you're automatically a man because we all know many women that are more, and that's a, that's a strong effect size with narcissism is a lot lower than that. But on your second question, I think the reason is quite obvious, which is that the closer you are to privilege, the closer you are to being the elite or the status quo, the more entitled you should be, right? I mean, it's just simple. If you're born rich or white or male or to privilege uh, or educated um, or to an aristocratic family, which is basically what was the explicit and overt official rule for getting to places in life for most of our history, uh, then narcissism is, is, is something that is just a natural consequence of your privilege and your entitlement, you know? And I think even at the, at the subtle level, if you're looking now at the kind of most recent chapter of, of the evolution of gender inequality and gender diversity and some of the gains that women have made in the workplace, if there is pushback, and, and, you know, there is this fight between toxic masculinity denouncers and men who think that, you know, we're, this is like going back to the 60s or 70s and uh, we're becoming so politically correct and uh, uh, sort of digressing into some kind of stupid and unmeritocratic affirmative action policy. That's because those who are in the elite and part of the, the privileged status quo feel threatened you know, feel threatened. But notice that the thing that they or me, I can speak as a middle-aged white male myself, the thing that we are losing is the uh, license to be entitled. You can no longer go out there and say, listen to me because I'm a man or I'm a middle-aged white male and pay attention to me because I am the in-group. So we have definitely lost a little bit of that privilege. And that's why you're seeing the backlash that you're seeing now. Yeah. And and so, you know, we've been talking kind of about leadership in general, but I, I'd like to bring it, you know, a little closer to our listeners, you know, everyday lives. And you opened your book, you know, and, and I, I did it earlier in, in this episode by Googling my boss is or my manager is and the autofill gives you a lot of really bad things. You know, my my boss is a jerk. My boss is incompetent. My boss is awful. Have these type of toxic management styles gotten worse over the pandemic and and how have they played out and how has the the shift to remote work and the debate on return to the office made these worse better affected them you know we've seen obviously with the great resignation a lot of people quitting their jobs and you kind of have to imagine that their leadership and their direct managers are a part of, of, of the calculus and why you'd want to leave your job. Um, how has this kind of toxic management played out over, over the last year and a half, two years? Mm -hmm. So I think the first part that is important is that I don't think that over the past 20 or 30 years, managers or leaders have become uh, significantly worse. But I think that people's expectations have increased. You know, we want to be treated fairly and we want to have someone who inspires us, who can teach us something. And we know we have read all these wonderful books and paid attention to all these data about the benefits of having a competent and moral leader be your boss. And we're not getting it. So, you know, it's like um, uh, we're trying to raise the bar and the quality of leaders is clearly not increasing uh, in turn. Over the past year and a half, you know, we don't have as much data yet. And certainly we are very much in the midst of this pandemic, which seems to have a new chapter uh, every few months or so, sadly, and is by no means over. You know, I think you can expect that 
in very, 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 very few cases, almost like maybe good for a Netflix show, but more like a, of like a freaky case. It even, it even pains me to hypothetically think about a situation in which somebody had a really terrible boss and somehow over the, the pandemic, they became amazing. You know, that's almost like not even Disneyland, you know, it's like, it's impossible. So I think what science would have predicted is that something like this pandemic would have represented a situation of increased and heightened stress, uncertainty, where basically, you know, if you were a typical manager and you were managing, like, let's say your, your managerial or career as a boss was level two as the challenge, you went from level two to level five, right? So how many people have the ability to deal with that while they are not just leaders or managers, but also humans, and they have their kids at home and they have relatives who are dying and they're getting sick, et cetera. So I think what has happened in this pandemic is that people have realized, those who were lucky enough to have good bosses, have realized how important they are. And I'm pretty sure that effective and competent managers, it's not like they have gotten better, but they have managed to deliver even in these very, very adverse circumstances. And therefore they have enhanced the connection with their employees and they're even more valuable today than they were before. And I think for a lot of managers who aren't even necessarily narcissistic or incompetent, they are having to play catch up and they're having to find ways to learn new things. Like, for example, how can you manage a team where half of the people are at the office and the other half are on Zoom? How can you empathize with people who are virtually and you haven't seen them for a while? And how can you show them that you care without interfering with their personal life? You know, do you tell somebody to put their camera on when they don't want? And if they do and you see something weird in the background, do you mention it? Is that an intrusion? You know, it's like all of these complexities that have emerged or have been sort of exacerbated in this year and a half means that even if you were a good boss, you're having to seriously adjust to a situation while undergoing your own personal stress and uh, anxieties. So I think that's why this is like an accelerated MBA for any boss or any leader, a real MBA, you know, which actually is learning on the job in the toughest of circumstances. Yeah, those are some really important points. I mean, it sounds like you can just imagine how it plays out in different scenarios. If your boss was a micromanager when you were in the office, chances are they're even worse of a micromanager when you're when they can't see you and you're working remotely. And, you know, we had a, an episode uh, recently where we talked about how harassment at work has actually gotten worse during the pandemic. I think that a lot of these bad behaviors and bad ways of operating under stress, as you say, have just gotten heightened. Um, and, you know, and so it sounds like, in a lot of ways, all of these problems we are talking about, unfortunately, have gotten worse. Are there any ways that you see things getting better? I mean, I, I know you you mentioned a little bit that you don't think bosses have necessarily gotten worse in the last 30 years. It's that we are expecting more of them. Do you see any other kind of hopeful ways that things are changing? Well, I think, you know, one of the silver landings of this horrible crisis and, uh, you know, pandemic, which isn't just a health crisis, but also a social, economic, and political crisis, is that it has raised awareness on scale or at scale on the importance of having leaders uh, who have these right qualities. And I think a lot of people will rethink how they perceive and even select or elect leaders. You know, In a logical world, we shouldn't have needed a global pandemic to realize that people are generally better off when they're managed or led by people who are decent and competent. 
but in our world, it seems like we did. You know, so I think um, that and the fact that many leaders who are not very good would have been exposed by this crisis because when everything is going well, it's a lot easier for incompetent men or incompetent leaders or people in charge to hide and go unseen. And I think our standards will continue to rise, right? Because if we know, if we're now aware that anytime there can be a major crisis, we actually need to be led or looked after by people who are smart and caring, then we're going to think twice before we select or elect a charismatic narcissist into a position of power. I mean, that is my hope. And I think, again, in general, there's a lot of managers who might be well-meaning and not necessarily be nasty, but if they're not very good, dealing with people and with these kind of high-pressure jobs during a pandemic is much, much harder, right? It's like, you know, imagine that you have any skill, like you play the piano and you can play okay. Well, maybe you can play okay at home, but what if there are four people watching? And what if suddenly you are, you know, have in, in the Super Bowl or performing, the stress levels mean that even if you're okay, under, you're not going to perform well, you're probably going to underperform. And the same happens now with managers. So if you're okay, now you're probably bad. And if you're good, now you're probably okay. And if you're amazing, you might be good, but good is amazing these days. <laughs> oh, that's almost a little bleak. Like if you're amazing, you're good. If you're, you know, bad, you're really awful. I wonder, you know, short of a global pandemic and short of that assessment that your roommate took that was very data-driven, if this preference for a certain type of leader, which is, as we've covered, the wrong type of leader, if this preference is so ingrained in our culture and in our nature to how of how we select people, how do we go about changing it? Both, you know, I guess maybe the public in, in choosing, you know, political candidates, but also within our companies of who we decide to promote. Well, you know, I think the most obvious change that you can expect is not you know, change from one year to the next, or even from one decade to the next, but change at any point in time that occurs between organizations or between institutions or between nations, right? So it isn't that, you know, if everyone reads my book and pays attention to the research and decide to change, you know, in the, last, in the next five years, we can expect uh, to have great leaders and that when people Google my boss is, they read things like inspirational, amazing, trustworthy, because you know that's not going to happen. But there are some places in which that is happening already. And what we know is that those are the places that are winning the war for talent and that are creating institutions that are reshaping the culture in a positive way. You know, And I always talk about my own origins because I grew up, grew up in Argentina. I was born and raised in Argentina, which I think is the only perpetually declining nation on earth in terms of GDP, prosperity, and economic standards. And so, um, you know, you can go from one century to the next, from being one of the richest countries in the world to being a failed state. And why does that happen? Because if you have four or five generations where systematically you choose the wrong leaders and they create corrupt institutions or malfunctioning things, that's where change happens. And at the end of the day, if you're interested in kind of creating societies that are better, then you can't just hope for, you know, societies to create successful enterprises that are disruptive and create, you know, the next Tesla or the next Facebook. You have to also hope that there are institutions and that there are governments that actually care about people and have the ability to contribute value rather than make things worse. Um, so I think, 
progress is not a straight line, as I think Obama and Abraham Lincoln said, but we need to have the humility and the self-criticism to learn from our mistakes and realize that sometimes things are not going very well. And, you know, I have, even though I'm a natural pessimist, I do have faith in humanity because humans are the most adaptable creatures on earth. And we have the ability to even learn habits and find ways to behave and operate that defy our archaic, you know, and ancient kind of modes of uh, behaving and living, you know? So we have even the ability to create cultures that override genetic or instinctual kind of tendencies and preferences. And that's very much what we need to do now. We need to override kind of these ancient adaptations that are not leading to positive leadership choices, but that are, are allowing a lot of people who are not very prepared and not very competent and not very benevolent to uh, get to the top. And when that happens, you know, it creates a self-fulfilling kind of system or a self-enhancing but also self-defeating kind of system where toxic leaders corrupt their organizations and you know corrupt organizations or systems are a little bit like polluted waters where contaminated waters where other bacteria and parasites thrive and that's what we have to do we have to basically care as much as we can about ethics and morality so that we don't just pick people who might seem um, interesting attractive or funny but also good decent human beings I really like that you refer to yourself as a pessimist who has uh, hope in humanity. I, I identify with that a lot. I feel the same. In thinking about this and, and how we, you know, our listeners and, and individuals in companies and in workplaces, you know, that we've we've covered a lot of how homogenous, especially uh, the C-suite and leadership positions within many companies are. You know, if, if any company has diversity, it's usually in more entry-level positions. How can we go about changing our workplaces, both with existing staff, you know, maybe who we consider for promotion and leadership uh, within like the hiring process and who we start to bring in? How can we change our preferences and ideas of what a leader looks like and who should get ahead at work? So the short answer would be with data, right? Because if we actually look at what people contribute and the value they bring, and you want an organization that isn't uh, a homogenous cult, but you want people who bring different perspectives and who can thrive precisely because they have different viewpoints and different abilities and different backgrounds, then you don't even have to pay attention to whether they are male or female, black or white, old or uh, young, uh, rich or poor. You can just look at diversity on a cognitive level and you're going to end up with a much better demographic representation of these groups than you have right now, you know? So with gender, this is most visible because we know that the world is populated by almost more women than men, So, but it's roughly 50-50. And we also know that when it comes to credentials, higher education, college, um, the soft skills that are needed to be an effective leader, things like empathy, emotional intelligence, self-control, integrity, humility, and the absence of these dark side traits like psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellian, that the best gender diversity intervention would be to focus on talent, not on gender. So actually have a meritocratic system in place that is gender blind, you know? So just like you go to a blind wine tasting and you don't look at the labels, you taste and then you pick, selection internal and external for leaders should be the same. You should look at a person's 
qualities, you know, science-based assessments have done a great job over the past three or four decades to identify things like empathy, EQ, people skills, and also absence of dark side traits. And then you should also look at a track record. I mean, you know this because you're in an area that is more meritocratic in the sense that your achievements, your records, you know, how well your pieces do when you write or when you, they speak for themselves. And of course you can complain that it's never perfect. And I'm sure you say some of the things that I did that I consider the best haven't done so well and vice versa because you're in an artistic field. But ultimately, um, you know, media and anything, any artistic profession is more meritocratic because you have, you have a track record and your achievements may speak for yourself. Whereas if you're in a normal job and it's whether your manager likes you or not, it's, it's cruel, unfair, and it incentivizes you to spend more time sucking up to your manager than doing your job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like the answer is kind of the most obvious one, right? It's judge people's abilities to do the role based on their abilities to do the role, not on, exactly. you know, if they play politics, if they're, you know, have the, the type of personality that you view a leader as. Um, Tomas, I think that's all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure and I uh, hope it has been of some uh, use or at least entertainment to your audience. And thank you again for inviting me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. Do you have a story of a horrible boss? Have you quit your job amid the great resignation? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 